second act podcast as i always say it is a continuation yet an evolution the act of finding meaning fulfillment and a deep sense of purpose in the beginning i thought this medium would be a place to learn from experiences of others during what this platform has given us and so many recordings that we have done the name itself has become synonymous to so many different ideas for some it spells hope for the others inspiration and for me today it purely spells power it is a place where people come to narrate their experiences a place of learning and viewing the world from someone else's perspective a place to share learn confess express and take away we at second act truly believe that learnings happen through conversations so welcome uh, doc b um i'll call you dog b for this um dr bhattacharya is born in england um his father was indian and that's how he gets a very indian name still very patriarch i have to say and <laughs> uh, his mother is from london uh he's very driven and motivated we will talk a lot about that because he is that person who also brings it that motivation in his work and i'm going to really probe into it because uh, every one of us needs it and we will find out the mantra behind it um of course not only that he is a practitioner a doctor uh, and uh, really uh, curates people's lives to be in a happy space but what um, really excites me is that he uses the word empathy and he runs a clinic called the empathy clinic uh, very unlikely in the medical profession that one hears this term but uh, of course very very intrigued to know more more about uh, that dr b and not only that but of course a lot of music that he blends with his profession uh, on the other side not that he blends it but just that he also has a lot of music in his life that makes him a very interesting doctor to be So Dr B welcome this is a second act podcast a place where we take out everything you know that you have another potential another drive another purpose in life and uh, maybe i am hoping that somebody who hears a conversation is able to take out something that will really bring in a purpose in their life so So I try first of all thank you so much for reaching out um we don't know each other yet but we will don't worry and I want to make a comment on the name of your show second act because I think my entire life has been a second act wow um as born in one country moved to another country um it, my my career has always been a second act um I'm always looking to move my career to new places which be a second third fourth and fifth act um <laughs> I've I've also acted and danced on the stage wow. I have a classical ballet background so I'm very comfortable on the stage but I'm also a complete introvert so it's just an interesting juxtaposition of seconds and 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 acting and my second act so when I saw the name of your show I got so excited because it's actually who I am I am a second act wow <laughs> this i didn't know will blend so well and thank you for you acknowledging that you know it really i think it brings in so much inspiration to me every day when i say this name itself you know uh, even if in a dull day i say second act it just it brings a spark in my life so yes i well, think well some, some something that makes us uniquely human is hope it's very hard to to see hope in in other creatures i, I know they have it I know a tree has hope that it can grow again when it's chopped down but I think human beings practice hope and something that is so profound when it comes to hope uh 
is that when something that we lose something or something is taken away from us, there's always a second chance or a second act that we can follow. And that's why your title is so powerful because it's a hopeful title. It's not just a phrase, it's, it's talking about hope. I'm going to use that one, Dr. B, in one of my- Absolutely, it's yours, <laughs> I'm to you right now. Thank you so much. This is a great one to introduce it, actually. I never thought of it that way. It just gives me a lot of like uh, motivation to be, you know. Uh, so yeah, but thank you for that. Um, you know, starting with uh, knowing a little bit more about you and the work that you do, um, it's a very obvious question, and I'm sure that a lot of people have asked you this or in a conversation, that how do you keep yourself disconnected from so much which is going on when people come to you and consult you and your life itself? Do you, like, you know, are you able to keep it separate? Does it impact you as a psychiatrist yourself? Well, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a sponge emotionally. So I tend to soak things in, which is why I need to squeeze that sponge regularly. Uh, so I don't end up being a damp sponge. And the way I squeeze that sponge regularly is I exercise a lot. And that's what my, all my music is about. It's so different from being a, a doctor to be uh, playing or writing or recording or on a stage performing. And that squeezes that sponge. So the next time in front of my clients, I'm dry again and I can absorb what I need to absorb. I think when we talk about empathy, we're talking about absorbing. Mm -hmm. And when we absorb, that can fill us up. And if we get too full, then we can get overwhelmed. If we get overwhelmed, we can try and push harder and push harder to try and keep up with that. And that causes something called burnout. And burnout is something I'm very keen on talking about uh, on, on, in platforms. But the problem with burnout is that people don't like talking about it because they feel ashamed. So I realized very early in my career that I didn't want to get too overwhelmed. I didn't want to get burnt out. I didn't want to get ashamed of, of, of not being able to keep up with all this stuff. And this is why I've got so many second acts on the go in my life to keep me uh, fresh when I'm in the moment with my clients, but also to keep me fresh when I'm in the moment with my relationships, my friendships and with my marriage and with my children so that I can be that optimistic and that hopeful person and hopefully that will inspire that for other people yes uh, i think more than anything i think it's the profession that you chose so i want to go back to ask you you wrote that you know it is it was something that you always wanted to be are we uh, coming from a space that you know you you got inspired from did you want to just cure the world you so what were the thoughts when you were younger <laughs> So I had a leg problem when I was six. Okay. And this is in England. And I had to be in the hospital for three months. And then for about a year and a half after that, so almost two years for the whole thing, I had to have a lot of um, metal equipment on my legs. Wow. Now, I wanted to be a soccer player and play with all my friends on the field. But what happened is, is I couldn't be with my, my male friends on the field. I got stuck with all the girls. Mm -hmm. As I was, I was able to stand still and hold the rope and help and play skipping rope. And I realized girls are cool. They like to talk about how they think and feel. They like to talk about empathy. They like to share stories. And, 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 and they're, they're actually what holds communities together. The guys are just running around thumping each other, kicking this ball. So I learned very early that, that, that listening and, 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 and reflecting and thinking about what in those days, what all the girls were talking about was a way cooler place for me. 
than to be running around on a on a on a soccer field kicking a ball, which has value too. I'm not, I'm not dissing that at all. But so from a very early age, I was that guy in at recess that kids would come and talk to. And then eventually they would come and talk about their problems. And then I realized, wait a minute, I could have a career doing this. And so it 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 just fits who I am, you know, the introvert listening, reflecting, and listening to the the amazing way that the girls talk to each other and how different it was from the way the boys talk to each other. That's where it all started. Wow. I'm, I'm listening beyond what you're saying. Not every boy realizes that. And I'm so glad that you did it. And that too at a very early age. So I mean, empathy is something, at least in my corporate career, I started hearing about it, let's say six or seven years ago. This term, I did not think that had any relevance, especially in you know corporate world. Um, but suddenly everybody's talking about empathy. But um, of course, one is that we are talking about it and one is that we are being empathetic. So do you train people to be empathetic or are you empathetic to them? How does it work? Well, empathy actually isn't a one-way street. It's a two-way street. Yeah. And so when we introduce ourselves to someone and we begin to get to know them, we want that person to experience how we feel in our life. We want to experience how we feel in our, in our life on the inside. And hopefully that person wants us to be experiencing them. Now, let me give you a little example that's auditory. You ready? Yeah. So later, later on when we're listening to the show, my voice is not going to sound to me the way it sounds to me right now on the recording. Mm -hmm. If you ever notice, we don't sound the way we sound to ourselves when we listen to ourselves back on a recording. Right. Now, the reason for that is that when we're speaking into a, a tape recorder or a machine, our voice is coming from our mouth going right into the machine. When we're speaking in our, just in our, in, in our inner voice, it's coming here, but it's also coming through our body. Mm -hmm. And if you put your fingers in your ears, you can still hear your voice because that's the resonance that's happening in your body. So for me, empathy is trying to listen to the way someone's voice sounds to them. Oh. And that's, I, know, I know that's impossible, but I think that's the effort. And so once you start to get interested in how someone else is experiencing themselves, if I say to you, no, that's, uh, China, that's the way you sound, you can say, no, 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 that's not the way I sound to me. And, but no, no, that's the way you sound to me. That's, that's not empathizing. That's just pointing out the fact of how we sound on a tape recorder. But if I try to understand how you sound to you, and that goes to sound, feelings, emotions, wishes, fantasies, and that's what I do in my office. I try to, get, I try to enter the world of that other person to find out how they experience themselves. And once I start doing that, that makes a huge difference on how they feel understood. Wow, that's very powerful. So people who are hearing us and we need it really a lot in our life right now to be empathetic. What can I learn from you right now if I have to? What do I do in my life to understand somebody and make them feel understood? Well, I, again, I wouldn't use the word make. I would, okay. I would use the word try because I think right. when we talk about empathy, it's, it's quite soft. Empathy is quite a soft um, uh, experience. There's no hardness to empathy. And we can talk about kindness and compassion if we have time later on. But for me, empathy is mostly a passive experience. In other words, if I ask you a question, I have to listen. 
And it, while I'm listening, if I'm thinking about all the, the amazing things I'm going to be saying while you're talking, I'm no longer listening. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just hearing myself and I'm trying, your, your, your words are coming um, beside what I'm, so, so you really have to clear your mind and stop thinking about your thoughts when you're really listening. And when you're really listening, and what I do is I actually try to build a movie of what the person's telling me in my mind. So if, and now I'm kind of like on the scene watching their movie, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and that's how I come up with the questions because I might be noticing something's missing. So I'll ask, so where was your, where was your friend during that time? Oh, right. And, and that means that I'm completely ignoring my mental state at that time. And I'm just trying to enter the mental state of the other person. And that's called active listening and also active imagining. And that's what I do for empathy. And that's very hard to do. You have to practice it because most people can only listen for about 15 seconds before they get bored. So do you do a private practice or are you impaneled with a hospital? How do you normally get to people? Uh, well, no, I don't. I've never worked in a hospital. I only, only have worked in a private practice. Um, people get sent to me because they know how I work. Okay. And I'm I'm extremely busy, of course, but also what I do takes time. Yes. Um, you, you can't you can't really have um, an enduring therapy experience with someone in five minutes. It's going to take a little bit longer than that. And there's a lot of issues around, especially if I'm working with people with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, especially from childhood abuse, when you need to be very careful and you need to create a safe environment before and an empathic environment. But um you just can't start resonating empathy with someone unless you've created a safe place for them. And, and what's happened to me over the years is that I get referred mostly specifically for what I do. Um, uh, my empathy approach is you know, people sort of know it now. And it's very different from going to see, for example, a psychiatrist who will get you to fill out a few forms and then look at the checklist and then say you have this diagnosis and then give you some medications and say we'll see you in six months, which is fine. You know, that, that's a perfectly uh, uh, reasonable form of care as well, but that's not really how I practice. I, I really want to get to know the person um, as well as their illness. Their illness is important, but the person where that illness is inside is even more important. So maybe a little offbeat kind of a question, but like I'm talking from a person who would want to ask this. Um, so when you talk about the post-trauma um, or the post-stress, when you're dealing with young adults, uh, how you choose your words these days, because I do not know if I knew this word, either stress or depression or trauma so much as my kids do today, they are very well aware. And uh, they also know that, you know, when they need therapy, when they don't, um, you know, it's a very, uh, I think it's a very great movement towards knowing yourself and being aware of your feelings now, which I think I completely missed out. And I think you would also realize that we didn't have a chance. So how do you deal with younger children these days? Because you have to be so careful as parents. And I don't have a background to deal in a certain way. But I think that we have to realize that young children are people too. The only thing is they don't have the horizon of, of experience or wisdom to be able to compare now to their future. So if a kid gets caught um, stealing something in a grocery store, they might think their life is over um, because they can't make those same kind of measurements. They don't know how long it's going to take to drive somewhere 
uh, if they're that young. So I think what you have to be careful is that the measurements uh, when we're younger are very different than when we get older. When you're a kid, you know, uh, it takes forever for, for your school semester to be over. And when you become an adult, you know, everything happens in the blink of an eye. Time seems to go faster when we're older. So this is important to know. And, and whether we're talking to children, teenagers, or, or adults, my, my approach is always the same. And that is that create a safe environment, make, the, make sure the person feels safe where possible, and if you have questions, ask them as clearly as you can and, and, and prove to them that you're listening. And you prove to them that you're listening by, by saying, um, thank you for telling me that. I'd like to just summarize what I think you told me. Um, is this what you told me? And tell them what you told them. Did I miss anything out? And they'll let you know or not. And as you do that and you can prove to them, you're really taking them in. People, most people will tell you almost anything you ask them whether they're teenagers or adults. And I'm shocked how many people tell me things that they've never told anyone ever before. And it's not because there's any magic. I'm not a special person, but I make the experience feel special to that person because I make them believe where possible, I'm using make now and I said not to to you, but I'm, I'm allowing them to believe um, that, that they're in a safe place. And whatever they tell me is gonna be treated with respect uh, consideration and hopefully hope where they too in their life can have a second act instead of the one they've been doing their whole life. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, you wrote two books. One of them is on relationships. Um, so why did you choose this topic? Well, uh, unfortunately, after 28 years of marriage, my parents got divorced. And it was the same time I got into medical school. And it was a very shameful and embarrassing experience. And you know, my parents are good people and I had a, a, a good upbringing, but, but they got divorced because they just lost that connection with each other. And you know, I got married fairly early in life and started raising my family. And I got really, really interested in what are the key ingredients of keeping a relationship together, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's with our friendships, whether it's in our marriages, uh, 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 or with our children when, when we become parents. And I began to realize more and more what causes people to get alienated from each other is they don't align with each other enough. They just kind of drift apart. And if people meet and get married early, they may just kind of just drift apart over time because that's what happens. And, and one of my, my goals, especially in, 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 I've been married for 35 years, one of my goals is to always align with my partner to make sure that, 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 that we're possible, that, that if we're allowed to have different interests, but we have to know where we're at. And when we know where we're at, we can, we can align each other to, to us ultimately to support each other. And if that keeps going and there's a genuine interest in each other, that's a much greater chance of making sure that our love and our respect and our uh, admiration and our support for each other is maintained, whether whether that's in my friendships or in a marriage or or in, in my work, for example. And so I I began wondering what causes people to drift apart like that, and that's why I wrote my book. So when you talk about alignment, um, what is that alignment? How do I bring? So sometimes your alignment is not matching, despite your best intention. Because you're two different people, you think differently. Um, now I'm also in the 26th year, 26th year of my marriage. 
I see there are lots of things that we have come together, but there are some things that we just don't agree on sometimes. And then we just say, okay, you know, am I drifting apart? Um, so, so what is this alignment and how do I bring it like, you know, into my life? So marriage, you know, if we're going to talk about marriage in India versus uh, Canada, I mean, the divorce rate in, in India is, is incredibly low. I and mean, the divorce rate in Canada is around 50%. Yeah. So it's almost a flip of a coin. Marriage is an agreement to be someone's companion until you die. And it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean that you need to get along all the time. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to fight. But it's a, it's a fundamental agreement to be together and to support each other where possible. You don't have to agree and you can fight, but it's an agreement to be your that person's companion for the rest of your life. And I think it's a wonderful arrangement in part because that's what communities are. Communities are groups of families. That's what society is, which is groups of communities. And if we all let it crumble, then the basis of our connections is also going to crumble. And I'm not threatening. I just think that that's, that, that's, that's, that's an outcome. So I think it's really useful to know how to maintain a relationship with someone. Um, e even if you don't get along or if, or if you're going through a, a rough patch, I think marriage is an agreement uh, on um, uh, physical reasons so that you, that's your physical partner for the rest of your life, but also emotional reasons. And that doesn't mean you can't have friendships outside of the, the, the marriage with, with people of the opposite sex, for example, but it means that you have to have boundaries. You have to have, to have boundaries that, uh, so that your marriage is a place of uh, safety and sanctity and there are boundaries around it. And what happens, especially in Canada, is that people, people get bored. People just, they just want more. They want, they want a, a fresh experience. They want a, dare I say it, a second act. Um, <laughs> and, and that's one thing that marriage isn't. Marriage is not, uh, uh, hopefully, is not a setup to, to need to have a second act. It, it's, hopefully, it's the first act. And, the, and I know that that's somewhat unrealistic, that, that not all people uh, can, and maybe not all people should stay in it, especially if they are in a bad marriage. But the idea is to generally agree, irrespective of those moments when you're having a, a, a rough patch. Yeah, and so, yeah, I want to read this book, of course, uh, and to understand uh, what we can do to align better. And the rest, the rest 25 years will be then a sweet <laughs> <laughs> So what is your second book about? Well, my second book is a novel. And I started... Um, to notice a lot of the, my friends who I graduated from medical school um, back in 1984 uh, were starting to retire and were, were retiring from burnout. Oh, and so I started oh. thinking, I'm not burnt out. I really love my job and I, I love life. I love my marriage and, and my kids. And why are they getting burnt out? And I've been burnt out a few times in my career as well. So I know I have some experience for what that feels like. But I wrote, I wrote a book about a psychiatrist who burns out. Um, it's, it's, it's written like a, like a movie. And I wanted to kind of bury or embed the themes of burnout in the novel format uh, so that people wouldn't necessarily have, have to read a self-help book about burnout. It will be a story that anyone could relate to. But the problem with burnout, uh, and so, so that's called Deep Fried Nerves is the book, but the problem with burnout is a lot of professionals are ashamed and, and they, their shame keeps them silent. 
and that silence uh, uh, allows their burnout to to fester and grow until sometimes they might have a breakdown. And so I think I think we're at almost pandemic uh, levels of burnout in North America, uh, especially in especially in, in healthcare, especially in uh, uh, medicine. So I think it's 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 a bit of a difficult situation because I'm trying to say let's not be ashamed, but people are are often ashamed, don't want to talk or admit that they're burnt out, and so they keep going until snap something cracks or they start retiring. So I think it's a big problem. But I wrote it as a novel to to again, in my usual way, to to have a softer approach, to ring some alarm bells about burnout in our culture. Yeah, I think it's very important. And also because at this time of our life in the last two and a half years, I think not only burnout, uh, you know, in emotionally, but I think every in every which way, we were not able to do even, you know, physical practices, um, you know, fitness practices, um, you know, even if like I'm such a yoga person that I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning. And during the last two years, I've seen my, you know, the alarm bell, going and like I'm switching it off and then I'm saying okay I'm gonna get up and like the energy levels are dropping despite everything else and I'm feeling the change in my own self and I'm sure that a lot of young people do so what is the thing that we can all do to be in a good balance of you know because times are challenging and it's not easy for anyone what do you recommend as a doctor well, well, as a person, uh, maybe not so much as a, doctor, okay. as a person, I think there's physical, I think there's emotional or mental, I think there's social, and I think there's spiritual. So for me, uh, those are the ingredients that I'm constantly trying to maintain and preserve so that I feel physically capable, mentally capable, socially capable, and spiritually capable to do what I do, which includes... Um, my, my marriage and my relationships with all my friends and family, and of course my work. So I have to show up um, looking as if as if I'm okay. And I don't just have to be okay. I have to be able to be a role model for okay and and inspire other people to have that okay as well. I mean, if I come on looking kind of uh, just really, really down, it's it's very hard to inspire people uh, who have anxiety problems or trauma or depression if I look like I'm not coping with myself. So it's, I'm, I'm not acting it. I actually do feel okay. Uh, and then more than okay. And so practicing those things, especially the spiritual, I think it's really important to, to listen to how you feel on the inside. Um, whether you use meditation or or various uh, or yoga is fantastic, of course, or various physical techniques, to listen to how you feel on the inside, because because we're born with the capacity to read ourselves. You know how you have an engine light in your car, and if your car is a little bit and you, this little light will flash. Well, I think we have engine lights inside us, yeah. and if we really pay attention and and we can see them, we can see them saying you're okay today. We can see them saying, oh, I just want to hit that snooze button one more time. I'm just not feeling the energy. Be kind to yourself, which means some days you will get a day when you don't feel like doing something. That's okay. We need zero days and we need days when we're very active. But I think the whole idea of keeping that in a balance with our physical, mental, social, spiritual selves, for me, is the way to maintain it. And if you think about it, our brain has a thinking cortex, an emotional cortex, a motor cortex, and a balance cortex, right? So our brain is set up to keep those things all in check as well. 
And we need our bodies for our brain to work properly. And we need our brain for our body to work properly. That's why we need to have that integration with the physicality and the mentality. And I know sometimes if I'm really struggling with a problem and I can't figure it out, if I go for a run or a bike ride or a good walk, invariably, I'm, I'm 5% smarter because I've cleared my mind and I've got access to my thoughts again. And that happens most of the time. And I think it, as, as long as we keep doing that, that balance will be ours. Okay, so you wrote about mental health, of course, uh, in specific, and uh, you also mentioned kindness and compassion. Uh, and you also mentioned that be kind to yourself, um, you know. And, you know, it's, it's good to hear them. You know, when you read it, you feel, yeah, I need to do it. But how do I make it a habit? Or how do I inculcate in me? Uh, because it's not in my DNA to be kind to me. I'm always like, okay, I haven't done this. I'm always in a guilt mode. And I'm always like one shot of myself. So. <laughs> so, so if you want to make a habit of smoking, right. all you have to do is start smoking cigarettes. And with about a week, you're going to start craving cigarettes. Now you have a habit. Now let's run the other way. If you want to make a habit of breath work, if you take a deep breath in, and, and just do your breath work if you do yoga or any kind of technique. Um, that is inhaling, so is smoking. But, but this is, but breath work is a fabulous habit to develop. Right. Now, smoking will make you feel terrible when you start, and eventually you'll be addicted. So you feel good when you have a cigarette. That's the bad habit. Mm. But breath work and learning to calm your soul and your mind and your heart um, is a good habit. And the reward for a habit is to feel good about yourself. And what people often have trouble with is I wanna start a good habit, but you know, it's gonna take time, it's gonna, I have to get up, I have to go to the, whatever they're doing. But the reward for, for a good habit happens over here. It may not happen right away. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, we live, we, we live in a time when people want a reward very quickly. Right. They wanna be able to um, have a drink and feel good very quickly, they want, or a cigarette, or, or get a text from somebody very quickly. But, but, but the way our reward systems work is that we get more achieved in the long run. If we, can, if we can have a wish here and have a reward just a little bit in the future. And if you keep practicing that, we can learn how to, how to stretch that out so that we can set a goal that we might not achieve for many years, but we will we'll achieve it. And the more we achieve our goals, the more we, we look forward to long-term rewards the more confident we can feel that we can do that. And that can build really, really good habits on a daily basis. Uh, Did you see any transition in the last two and a half years versus the kind of work that you were getting before? Did you see that there was more pain? There was more people reaching out to you? And did you transition also in your life? Are we talking about the, the effect of the pandemic on my practice? Yes. Well, I'm just going to hold up this mug here. Okay. And it says, I love telemedicine. And I use a program called Doxy, which is actually a 100% virtual program. So what's happened to me is I went from, from an inpatient practice in an office uh, overnight to 100% uh, using a virtual platform online. No training. Um, we, just had to, we just had to jump immediately to that. But what I've noticed is that working on an online platform has actually been more efficient and effective. It's easier for me to deliver um, the care that I do. Uh, it's easier for my clients as well. A lot of them are getting better faster, so I can see more people. 
uh, ultimately. And I think it's it's it fits me better uh, to be working on this particular platform. So the transition for me was initially very scary. I thought, well, what am I going to do? I've been in an office for 35 years and now I've got to be on a, on a television screen. Um, but when I actually got into it, I said, this fits me perfectly. You know, I don't mind speaking. I don't mind performing. I, I don't mind being on camera. I never have been. And, and you know, my, my clients are comfortable too. They're often in, in a comfortable place. We can get into our session right away and we can get a lot done. So for me, I think it's been a, 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 a huge surprise, but a, a wonderful transition. Did, did your calls increase or did people who wanted to reach you increase in the last two and a half years? Yeah, well, the answer really is, the answer is really, I'm not that sure because I've always been extremely busy. There's a long waiting list to see me. I've been full ever since I started. And so am I full, full? No, basically, if I fill this cup up to full and I keep filling it, it's just going to spill over. So my cup has been full really for 35 years as far as my practice is concerned. So if I get 10 calls a, a week or 20 calls a week, I can only really see so many people. So so I, I think initially I thought there was going to be a lot of um, people calling around pandemic issues, but actually that's not been the case. Most people are calling because of relationship issues, what's happening in their relationships. Um, and that might be related, certainly related to the pandemic, but it's much more the human issues that I've been dealing with for most of my career. Yeah, yeah. I think we've spent a lot of time together also sitting at home. I don't blame people that, uh, you know, either it's gone really closer or then it is not working out. I think that's right. the two sides of the coin. Yeah. So how did the passion for music come in into all this? It, how did you manage time? Because when you're studying medicine, there is no time that I know. So. <laughs> well, that's actually not true. Um, when you're studying medicine, when you're studying medicine, um, I, maybe it's the way my brain works. But if you learn something, hmm. uh, the way your brain learns things is you learn something and you store it and then your brain needs to do something else. And you can either sleep or you can, you can either exercise. Let me just use my pointer here. You can use your left brain and then you can use your right brain. And so, I, so music is, is, is more of a right brain thing. And you know, being a doctor is a left brain thing. Now, if you're doing this all the time, you're strengthening both sides. So imagine if I start exercising my right arm all the time and I ignore my left arm. You know, not only I can be lopsided and look weird, but this arm is actually going to get weaker because I'm always using it. And this one's going to get weaker because I'm not using it. So if I use this one some of the time and this one some of the time, I'm going to be stronger all over. The brain is the same thing. It's really useful to exercise one side and the other side to give it a break. And I got involved in music in, when I was 15 in 1975. Yeah. Um, largely to deal with, with what was going on in my family. It was a bit dysfunctional. So I found that I could spend many hours in my room practicing my guitars and, and playing. And then eventually uh, when my parents broke up, the only, uh, to make money, the only way I could support myself was playing in a, in a, in a rock band. And so I had to bring all my books to, to, the, to the show. When I got off the stage, I run off to the corner, read my, study my books. And then for oh. half an hour, I get back <laughs> on the stage again and start playing again, get up and read my books. And, and I just got used to it. I, I missed out on all the socializing in the medical school because of that. That was a, a, a downside to that, but obviously I made it through. Um, I did extremely well in anything to do with psychiatry. So I knew that was always gonna be my, 
my thing. But for me, music also is a really good way to cleanse my mind and squeeze that sponge, as I said earlier. And and I think I think better um, because because of how much I invest in my music. And I, I practice an hour or two hours every day and I record music and have a recording studio. Yeah. I also observed that, uh, of course, you're putting some videos on um, uh, LinkedIn, and uh, I have only noticed you through LinkedIn. I want to appreciate that I find you very authentic. I, I find you vulnerable. I find you the person that you are. And that's why I reached out to you to say that share your story, please, because I'm sure that there are many out there who are, we are all trying to you know, put a brave face to ourselves. We don't want to show the world that we are breaking down sometimes and, you know, what's happening inside us. So thanks uh, for sharing that. Thanks for really bringing, uh, you know, the both sides uh, to us so that we can see you clearly. So that is something I really appreciate. And how do you feel about being on LinkedIn and like, you know, if this is something new that you are also doing, reaching out through LinkedIn? Well, it, it wasn't me, it was my daughter. My daughter was visiting us from Italy where she lives. And she said, dad, you need to, you need to get on LinkedIn and you need to put out some videos. So I started um, a little bit very, very cautiously thinking, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a professional, I'm a psychiatrist, you know, what is this? And I very quickly realized that LinkedIn had changed, that it actually was, was quite ready for someone who has some of the comments and ideas that I have. And so it, for me, it's been a platform to, to be me uh, and, and, and express both sides of me or, or many sides of me in a way that shows precisely what you're saying, that I'm a human being first. Uh, I'm, I'm a doctor as well, but I'm also a, a person who values family and friendships and, and empathy, compassion, love and kindness. And I think these are messages that are so, so, so important. And I mean, if I came onto your show with a white coat and a stethoscope and said, well, we're going to be, <laughs> yeah. it just, you know, I could, I could do that. You know, I could also turn up and I show with, with a screaming guitar and just be playing lead guitar and, and, and singing and screaming. And, uh, but I think, I, I, I think what I, who I am really is just a reflection of what's in here however it comes out. And I think my clients notice that. I think uh, my, my audience notices that. That's the way I write. And, and you know, there is really only one me. And if I, if I start acting like, like, like a way that I'm really not, I think that that's, that's not a second act I want to have. I, I want my, my second act to be, to be every new incarnation of an improved version of myself. Beautiful. Yes, that's what I wanted to hear, a better version of myself. <laughs> so before you go, I have two or three very quick questions for you. Um, how do I keep myself motivated every single day of my life? Well, you don't. You don't have to be motivated every day. You have to be motivated some days. And I think if you try to get motivated every day, you're going to experience disappointment and failure. And that's going to take away from your motivation. So don't set yourself up to fail. The best way to be motivated is to set a little tiny task that you do on a regular basis and then set bigger, bigger tasks with, with, with uh, bigger rewards. Motivation is something you can actually practice. And I start my day with push-ups, for example. So I'll, I'll do 40 push-ups every morning. And who wants to do push-ups as soon as they wake up? Yeah. No, but you know what it does? It, <laughs> it, it pumps a lot of blood to my brain. So that by the time I see my first client, especially if it's a cold morning, I'm warm and my brain is, is, is flush with, with fresh blood and it works every single time. And it's a little thing, 
but the the rewards that you get from 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 something that motivates you is what keeps you and what makes you more motivated in the long run i love your answer to be honest and i really did not know that one doesn't have to keep yourself motivated every single day and i hear you when you say that that is taking you yourself to failure to be honest because then there will be days when you're not and then you'll say oh my goodness i can't do it anymore and you know you'll be disappointed with your own self so thank you yeah. for sharing that i mean that is yeah that's got me to think it's okay not to be okay <laughs> it's okay it, it, it's okay to be who we are human beings are human right which means that we're we're essentially imperfect so the perfect human is actually essentially imperfect and when you embrace that and love that and give support to that um you can tolerate things that disappoint you and you can tolerate things that upset you because you know uh because of hope uh that you're always going to get get a chance for a uh, a second act or a, or a second opportunity and that's how we're built you know we we try and try and try um all the stuff that we have wasn't invented in a few days you know it took us uh many many years to invent language do you realize that we we've been on the planet for 300,000 years but we only started using language 50,000 years ago that means for 250,000 years we were not speaking it took us 250,000 years to learn how to speak and in the last couple of hundred years, we've got so many things uh, around us, like cell phones and all the rest of it that we invented. But, but for me, I think give yourself the time you need to invent the new you. Yeah, thank you. And if um, you are not practicing, you're not exercising, you are not uh, playing music, what are you doing? <laughs> Well, I like to write, you know, and I think I, I like I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn these days. I like to I like to spend time with my family and my friends. I think that's really, really important to maintain that social aspect. And a lot of times I, this might be sound a bit lame, but I just like to think. And, <laughs> nice. and, and thinking for me is my kind of meditation. And that's where I come up with things that, you know, I'm always diving into myself as well. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a sperm whale. Do you know about sperm whales? Mm, yes, of course. So, so, so they can dive up to, to 90 minutes, you know, almost two hours. I'm, I can't hold my breath for 90 minutes. What are they thinking down there? And they're in the depths of the ocean. It's so dark, it's black. They have to use sonar to try and uh, find everything. Um, and I, so I try, I just kind of pretend like everything's gone black. I'm in the, there's all this water pressure against me. What am I thinking and feeling? There's no distractions now. It's just me in the blackness. And that way I come up with the, some of the most bizarre things, but that's the way I, I kind of, I call it diving into the inner me. And that's the way I can, I can get some peace and calm as well. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, quite introspective as well. So that's great if you could do that. Um, okay, my last question. So is there another second act coming? Or is there another oh, there's act? many more acts. <laughs> many more acts? Okay. Yeah, I'm 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 turning 62 in a few days, and I think that I've I haven't even peaked yet. You know, I'm still thinking that the best time of my life is in front of me. I've always been that way. Wow. And and I think you know the, the minute I think that my life is kind of peaked and I'm just kind of going downhill now, that I don't work that way at all. I always think that um, you know I don't I like I don't like heights, but I'm a mountain climber, emotionally. And I think that there's always a new new peak for me to climb and I'm I'm on a roll. I'm going to keep going. And actually, you know, having people exactly like you from from right across the world reach out to, to connect with me, 
that tells me that um, not only I'm, what I'm doing is interesting, but I get interested in you and what you're doing. And if I can help you do what you're doing and you're helping me what I'm doing, that is exactly what we're doing. We're helping everyone think that they too can have a second act. Thank you so much. I think uh, talking to you was not only talking from an angle of what um, you know others are hearing. Um, there were a lot of things that I shared on this show as well. And uh, the thing is that we all need to be in a very balanced state. And uh, to do that, I think we need people like you. Uh, you know, this chat with you was something was which was in a safe space. It was very comfortable. And I'm sure that you are doing this with so many million, millions of us. And thank you for bringing that and doing what you're doing and many more mountains to climb <laughs> and the oceans to dive and, yeah. <laughs> and many more second acts. So beautiful it is. And thank you, Dr.